Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is October 22nd, 2019, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Take the Money and Run Without Getting a CT. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Justin Morgenstern. He is an emergency physician and the creator of the excellent FOMED project called First 10 EM. Welcome back to the SGM, Justin. It's a pleasure to be here as always. When can we expect you back in the great white north? Yeah, you know, coming home to Canada would definitely make things a lot easier because living in the future makes coordinating these recordings very difficult. But I should be back home drinking that Tim Hortons coffee in just a few months, home in time for Christmas. Oh, in time to roll up the rim to win. But we don't like to do ads here, so let's just get into a case. So a 21-year-old comes into the emergency department after being knocked unconscious while playing rugby. Obviously, you're not in North America. Maybe you heard about my wonderful experience while on sabbatical in New Zealand and came for a visit. The patient is now feeling great, or as I say in New Zealand, sweet ass. He has no pain, nausea, or neurologic symptoms. His exam is normal. You're not worried, but his dad is the coach of the American National Rugby team, and he says that his players always get a CT scan when this happens. You wonder what factors might influence a patient's preference for imaging. Well, the CT scan is arguably one of the most important pieces of diagnostic technology that we use in the emergency department. It allows us incredibly rapid identification of a myriad of life-threatening conditions. However, likely because it's such a valuable tool, there seems to be little doubt that we overuse it. For example, one study that looked retrospectively at all the head CTs ordered for trauma concluded that more than one-third were unnecessary based on the Canadian CT head rule. Not only does unnecessary testing reduce efficiency and adds cost, it also directly harms patients with unnecessary radiation. Many imaging decisions are obvious. I mean, the patient either clearly requires or clearly does not require imaging. One way to decrease CT scans of the head is to use a clinical decision instrument like the Canadian CT head rule. The SGEM covered this classic paper on the CCHR by the legend of emergency medicine, Dr. Ian Steele, on SGEM number 106. We also recently reviewed a paper that looked at increasing the age criteria for the Canadian CT head rule from 65 years of age to 75 years of age. The bottom line was that this paper opened the door for further research to try to narrow the criteria in the CCHR to further reduce unnecessary head CT imaging in the emergency department. However, further high-quality prospective studies are required prior to clinical application. Unfortunately, as we all know, there is a great deal of uncertainty in emergency medicine, which leaves a sizable number of patients in the gray zone where the harms and benefits are closely matched or they're qualitatively different or maybe just unknown. For these patients, shared decision-making is probably the best route forward. Even when it seems clear to the physician that imaging isn't required, we can be met with resistance from our patients. In addition, if we are working in a zero-miss culture, we may be more likely to order CT scans that are not medically necessary. Thus, it is important to know what factors influence patients' decisions to undergo CT scans? This study by Iyengar and colleagues examines the impacts of financial incentives as well as varying levels of risk and benefit on patient preference for CT imaging in the setting of a low-risk head injury. 
All right, Justin, give us the clinical question for today's podcast. Do financial incentives, together with potential risk and potential benefit information, influence patient preference for diagnostic testing? And the reference? So this is Iyengar et al., the effect of financial incentives on patients' decisions to undergo low-value head CT scans, and obviously because it's hot off the press, it's AEM October 2019. Oh, you just spilled the candy dish. I haven't even mentioned that this is hot off the press. Oh, it is. It is hot, and it is off the press. All right, let's run through the PICO. What was the population? So this is a convenient sample of adult patients who presented to the University of Michigan Emergency Department. And there were some exclusions, and I'll list those in the show notes. What was the intervention and comparison? So these patients were presented with a hypothetical low-risk head trauma scenario. The scenario was designed such that the Canadian head CT rule would suggest against imaging. And then three aspects of that scenario were randomized. So those three aspects, one was the benefit. This was presented as either a 1% or 0.1% benefit. And then they also were presented with a risk. And this was presented as either a 1% or 0.1% risk. And then maybe the most interesting one, incentive. Patients were either offered $100 to forego the CT or they were offered nothing. And then all the risk and benefit information was provided in multiple formats, which I really like. So this would include percentages like 0.1%, ratios like one in a thousand, and also some visual depictions. Yeah, I like that too. So let's talk about the outcomes. What was the primary outcome? So the percentage of patients who chose to receive a hypothetical CT scan. And the secondary outcome? So they performed multiple regressions to control for potential confounders. Well, as you mentioned earlier, this is an SGEM hot off the press episode, which means we have one of the authors with us on the show. Dr. Will Moyer is an emergency physician. His focus is on the treatment of acute neurologic emergencies, both as a researcher and as a clinician. Welcome to the SGEM, Will. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I have to say, this is one of the most interesting studies ever covered on the SGEM. What got you so interested in paying patients not to get a test done? Well, when we started doing, we did a related project, actually, where we looked at this in a very similar way in a previous summer with, with, with some different medical students. And we looked at it from the perspective of a copay versus no copay. Um, typically in the United States, patients don't have an extra copay for additional diagnostic testing in emergency departments. But we were exploring the hypothesis that possibly patients could be dissuaded from getting testing if they had a, a personal contribution at stake for that testing. So that was, that was where the, the, the idea had come from that sort of line of research. Sounds fascinating and something we do not deal with commonly in Canada. But Will, you brought a medical student with you today, an important member of your research team. So this is Jessica Winkle. She's a fourth-year medical student out of the University of Michigan. She is planning on going into emergency medicine after she graduates in the spring, a good choice in my opinion. And publishing an AEM should certainly help with your application. Welcome to the SGEM, Jessica. Thanks so much for having me. So who's going to read the author's conclusions? Because that's the next section, and I'm kind of thinking it should be Jessica. Yeah, I'd love to do that. So for the author's conclusions, I can read that. Um, providing financial incentives to forgo testing significantly decreased patient preference for testing, even when accounting for test benefit and risk. This work is preliminary, hypothetical, and requires confirmation in larger patient cohorts facing these actual decisions. Thank you, Jessica. 
Now we're going to run through a quality checklist for randomized clinical trials. But we struggled a bit with this, didn't we, Justin? Yeah, you know, this is an RCT, but it's really different from our usual RCTs. And some of the questions in our checklist aren't as applicable as when we look at RCTs of therapeutic interventions. You know, critical appraisal is always pretty complex, and even the two of us had to turn to a true expert in Dr. Chris Carpenter to determine which checklist to use, but he said, use the RCT checklist. He is the smartest guy in the room, usually. All right, so let's run through the checklist. The first one is the study population included or focused on those in the emergency department? Yes, it did. Did they adequately randomize? Yes, they did. Did they conceal the randomization? So no, allocation concealment was not described, although I can't really see why it would affect this hypothetical survey-based study. The patients, were they analyzed in the groups to which they were randomized? Yes. Did they recruit consecutively? No, so this is a convenient sample. Were the patients similar with respect to prognostic factors? Unsure. They don't really specifically say in this trial. And was everybody unaware of group allocation? So no, there was no blinding in this trial. Do they treat everybody equally? Yes. And was the follow-up complete? Absolutely. Do you think they considered all patient-important outcomes? Yes, they did. And was the treatment effect or the intervention effect large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant? Yes, I think it was. All right, let's look at the key result. They enrolled 913 patients with a median age of 45 years of age, and just over half the population was female. Now, the vast majority of the population identified as Caucasian and had attended at least some college. Overall, 54% of the patients elected to receive a CT scan. So what's the key result then, Justin? So as you might expect, decreased benefit or increased risk and offering the cash incentive to forego CT all decreased desire for CT. Yeah, so let's go through that primary outcome. And this was the percentage of patients that chose to receive a CT scan. And remember, the scenario didn't indicate that a CT was medically necessary. Correct, Justin? That is correct. All right, so what did they find? So when they randomized the benefit, if the benefit was reported as 0.1%, then about 50% of people wanted a CT, whereas if it was 1%, 59% wanted a CT. And if the risk was reported at 0.1%, then about 59% of the people wanted a CT. Whereas if it was 1%, that dropped from 59% down to 49% wanted a CT. And then finally, if you didn't offer people any cash incentive, about 60% of people wanted a CT. Whereas if you offered them that $100 to forego the CT, then it dropped down to 48% of people who would have wanted the CT. How about the secondary outcomes? Yeah, so these results remain consistent when they were adjusted for various potential confounders, including age, gender, race, income, level of education, and prior history of health problems. All right, that's enough of results section. Now it's time to talk nerdy, and we have two authors with us, so we came up with 10 nerdy questions. So we're going to ask these questions. Justin and I will alternate, and either one or both of you can choose to answer the question. And I'll start off with the first question, and this is referring to the sample size. Your sample size was based on a feasibility of medical students, I'm trying hard not to laugh, being able to complete a summer research project. Anyways, this would give an approximate power of 85 to 90% to detect a 10% absolute change in the proportions of subjects 
desiring testing from a baseline test acceptance rate of 50%. So my question is, do you think that a 10% difference reflects a really clinically important difference? So I can I can give a, a initial response to this question, and Dr. Ware, you can see if you have anything to add. But just kind of in looking at the the numbers overall, so we get about um, 3.9 million head CTs for TBI in the U.S. at least annually. And I was thinking if if that number could be reduced by 10% annually, I think that would be reasonably significant. Yeah, that was a 2009 paper by uh, Fred Corley, and they were looking at a population-based data set called the National Hospital Ambulatory Medical Care Survey that samples all of the emergency departments in the United States using a complex survey. So I suspect that the number 10 years later of the number of CT scans that are obtained in the U.S. has probably gone up, not down? Yeah, that's reasonable. All right, Justin, what's number two? So our second question is about statistics. So you guys performed a series of nested regression analyses for your primary statistical analysis. And I got to be honest, I did get a little bit lost in the math. In my relatively simple mind, there were only a couple variables with, you know, simple yes or no answers regarding the CT. It seems like presenting the raw numbers might have been easier to understand than the odds ratios that you do end up using. Can you explain the choice of statistics to me? Yeah, certainly. So there's a few things going on here. And when we, a lot of statistics, at least in what we use as, as, as physicians, is set up to compare two groups, often two groups with an assumption of independence, like patient getting treatment A versus patient getting treatment B. In this case, though, our sort of quote unquote intervention had three components, a cost, a benefit, and a risk. So another way of looking at this is that maybe this is more like a two by two by two factorial trial and that there are really eight groups, although those groups aren't independent, right? So half of those groups have the low risk, half of those groups have the high risk of cancer, half of those groups get no money, the other half of those groups get the hundred bucks, et cetera. So because there are these eight groups, we did present that in one of the tables, what each of those individual bins look like. And when I, I came up with a visual abstract that was tweeted recently by the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal, we show what, what it looks like in each of those eight groups graphed. And so I do think you're right. Looking to see what is actually happening, happening in the unadjusted space is important. The reason we used odds ratios for all of the adjusted models is simply because that's what logistic regression, when you do it with multiple variables, gives you. And we wanted to really check to see if those odds ratios were changing when we added in the adjustment factors like age and so forth. And interestingly enough, as you pointed out before, adjusting for lots of different things didn't really nudge what those odds ratios were for the three main effects of you know, risk of cancer, chance of disease of the, of the TBI, it's a serious TBI, and the cost. That makes a lot of sense to me. You got to listen to those statisticians. I guess it just means I got to go back to school if I'm really going to understand this stuff. And Justin, I'm just going to jump in here and say you can go back to school. And still, odds ratios can be a difficult concept to understand. We just don't intuitively think in odds ratios. It's much easier to think with relative risk ratios than odds ratios. 
But anyways, external validity is our third point. And the vast majority of this population was highly educated and white. There was also a very high percentage, 24%, or a quarter, that worked in healthcare. So how might that have affected the external validity of the results if you tried to apply it elsewhere? Sure, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And we, we did address this to some extent in our limitations. And I do think the demographics that you pointed out here is reflective of the patient population we do see in RED in Ann Arbor, because we are like a university town with a big, big healthcare system. But to, to address the points you made, um, there is some evidence that people with lower health liter- literacy um, do use less healthcare. Um, I can give you a reference to a, like a 2015 paper, but I think there there is a lot to unpack there. But I think more to the the second piece, I can explain a little bit better. Looking at that 24% of our study sample that works in healthcare, I think a lot of um, those individuals were people who worked more in allied health, people like social workers. We also included in that group people who were like medical researchers, people who worked in administration. So not everyone in that 24% necessarily had as much medical knowledge of diagnostic test performance to affect our results. And so specifically with external validity, then it would be a limitation to take this data and apply it elsewhere, because obviously different populations and cohorts and emergency departments and communities would have a different mix of their population. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think at face value, though, looking at 24% working in healthcare. I think that could be viewed as potentially more significant if we were looking at 24% of people who were like physicians and nurses versus in this case, um, our 24% of people is a little bit more distributed across different professions. So question number four is also about external validity. I have to say, when I was reading this trial, I was incredibly surprised to find that half of these patients wanted a CT scan. In Canada and now in New Zealand, where I work, ACT wouldn't have even been offered to these patients, given that they had passed the Canadian CT head rule. I often explain why a CT isn't necessary, and you know the vast majority of my patients are perfectly fine with that. I definitely haven't experienced you know half of my patients asking for a CT. I therefore do wonder how these results might apply in other countries. Sure. I hate the, to throw an entire country under the bus, particularly <laughs> yeah. when it you know, particularly when it's my country, but U.S. healthcare providers, at least in my experience, and this is both as a, as a clinician and, and reviewing articles and being an editor, they don't generally read the play-in criteria to the Canadian um, head CT rule. And what I mean by that is that, you know, if you pull it up in MDCalc, there's this big box that says, in order to be even included in the, in the validation, you know, the derivation in the validation study, you needed to either you have some evidence of, of brain dysfunction. You needed to either have loss of consciousness, amnesia, or a GCS lower than 15 at some point. And again, that's an important distinction. In America, it's like, oh, the person has a little headache and they hit their head and they're over 65, you know, and, and not on blood thinners. Oh, the Canadian head CT rule says that they're over 65, so I should get it. Even though they have no evidence of brain dysfunction or any of those playing criteria. So I do think we are really, we really love our CT scans in in America. And I do think that at some level right now, patients are putting more trust in technology these days than a careful clinician exam. You know, they don't know who I am. I've never seen them before. And they don't 
don't know that I, I you know, I'm a really cautious and, and careful clinician and I'm going to do a thorough exam and that the likelihood that they are going to need some procedure is relatively low. And this can be bidirectional, right? Sometimes doctors order more advanced imaging because they think patients will demand it. And sometimes patients actually directly demand it. And what I think doesn't happen enough is, is that we don't have a conversation about this. Because I've found that usually at the bedside, you know, somebody's like, I need you to do this CT scan so I can figure out if I have a concussion. You know, Because they'll see on the news, like, oh, a high school football player was, was hit hard, taken to the uh, local emergency department where they did a CT and determined they had a concussion. You know, we all know that the CT doesn't determine that you have a concussion. That's a clinical diagnosis. And when you tell people that the, the CT is designed to determine whether a neurosurgeon needs to remove their skull, most of them are like, oh, I know I don't need my skull removed. So, you know, people will respond to this, but I think a lot of times the doctor and the patient aren't necessarily paying for the test. So they're like, oh, well, it's better to be safe than sorry. And I think I think people have a hard time wrapping their, their head around the chance that diagnostic testing could be harmful, even you know, whether it's from radiation or whether it's from you know, subjecting people to unnecessary downstream procedures. But, but we know that those things are definite possibilities of diagnostic testing. So sometimes it's faster to, to get a CT scan than to have a conversation with somebody. Yeah, you know, we're going to spend a fair amount of time poking a little bit of fun at American uh, healthcare in this, but it's true. Your point about the inclusion criteria for the Canadian CT head rule is spot on. I have to spend a lot of time teaching that in Canada and New Zealand as well. I guess I still don't understand. Maybe we need to spend more time crossing the borders. I do not understand how there is such a huge gap in expectations between our two countries when the border is, you know, an hour drive away. Yeah, my experience has been similar to yours, Justin. I have rarely had a patient demand, certainly it's not 50% demand that they receive a CT. And Will said something very important there. Being a good clinician and doing a good history, followed by a directed physical exam, and then actually having a conversation with the patient about, you know, diagnostic uncertainty and the risk, the potential risk and the potential benefit of giving advanced imaging. Uh, what a difference that can make. But we're going to get into shared decision-making further on. I'm going to move on to number five, and this is about hypothetical numbers. You chose to use hypothetical risks and benefits rather than using known benefit and harm data. The hypothetical numbers could make these results less applicable in real-world settings. You discussed it briefly in the paper, but could you explain the choice of using 1% and 0.1% as your numbers? Sure, I can I can start off the answer to this question and see if Dr. Moyer has anything to add. But I think primarily we wanted these numbers to be balanced. You know, although this isn't perfect, as the TBI risk is like a more upfront risk, and the cancer risk would be more distributed over the patient's remaining lifetime. They seem to us, though, reasonably realistic values for these things. The higher event rates seemed greater than what we see clinically, but if we made these values much lower, we felt like it would be really difficult for patients to be able to understand even using our like different methods of reporting, like the visual, the ratio, et cetera. Yeah, and I'll just add to that. I think in the, you know, everything about radiation risk for CT is a little bit theoretical and some extrapolation from the, the nuclear attacks at the end of World War II. We don't really know exactly, and we haven't been using CTs 
long enough to really start to find it from you know, population-based studies later. Although I do imagine that in the not-so-distant future, people will be able to look at that in terms of that cumulative risk of scans. And we do know some patients who get lots and lots of scans. But yeah, I think really that's why we, we sort of use those ranges. Um, I, think, I think in the Canadian CT head rule um, validation paper, there was about a 1% risk of actual neurosurgical intervention. And obviously this, you know, we would expect it to be lower in the scenario we're presenting. So that's why we have this sort of range with 1% being the upper, upper range and, and 0.1% maybe being a little bit more reflective of, I know we weren't really focusing on pediatrics, but you know, that was, I think 0.1% was about the rate of neurosurgical intervention in, in, the, in the famous PCARN head injury rule for children. So I, I think these are realistic ranges and that's why we, we chose to use those. Well, thanks for explaining the real world numbers and why you use these hypothetical risks and tried to apply them in real world scenarios. Yeah, and that basically leads directly into a question number six is how we do this shared decision making in the real world. Because you, know, you mentioned in your discussion, that unlike the exact risk and benefit numbers that you present here, it's often incredibly difficult to determine the risk and benefit of, for a test for a patient in front of you in the emergency department. You know, personally, I think this is the hardest part of the job. So how do you think that that uncertainty in the real world will impact these results or your practice based on them? Yeah, I'll, I'll tackle that. So I think this is one area where some of the crowding and dysfunction we we observe in emergency departments all over the world can actually work in our, our favor because oftentimes people with these sorts of injuries do wait a while in our departments before we see them. And that gives us a sort of natural period of observation where they haven't declined, which I think in many cases can give us additional confidence regarding their stability potentially. I do think it is important for us to consider and this is something that I don't think we do enough of, and I, and I try to do it sometimes on shifts, but to really look at like, gosh, how many people actually had a neurosurgical intervention, right? I think over the last 13 years of me practicing, in terms of somebody with a GCS of 15 actually requiring a neuro neurosurgical intervention, I think I've probably seen it two, three times. You know, a couple subdurals, one kid who fell out of a tree but looked really pretty good and had, a, had an epidural that wasn't progressing very quickly. And that's, you know, that, that's, I've seen a fair number of people who've bonked their heads and had GCSs of 15. So I think, you know, I think this is sort of semi-quantitative. There's, there's information out there as to how often we need to perform neurosurgical interventions. And we also know how often we're getting CT scans, which is a lot higher. So I think we can use that information use our period of observation, or even consider an additional period of observation. You know, man, you know, you've thrown up twice, but gee, you feel perfect right now. Why don't, why don't you hang around our emergency department a little longer and we'll have you eat a little bit and then, then go in a little bit. That's one thing, that's one option that we, do, that we do have. I mean, obviously we have pressure if we have more people in our waiting room who we're not getting to because we're using that space. But in contrast to other settings like, like clinicians in an office and so forth, we can watch people a bit longer to get them more confident that they're, they're safe. And sometimes, you know, we're under maybe too much pressure, like, oh, let's get, you know, if we just CT this person and they can go home, people don't have to watch them, you know, that'll be quicker. But, but I think we do a disservice when we don't consider 
gosh, we've observed you for a while and things have been good. You know, maybe let's just observe you a little longer. So I think it's it's underutilized, but I think can help make the patient and the clinician more confident that the, the patient is going to be okay. Because in the end, that's what the patients want to know. Yeah, I think there's a really important underlying theme that you there. You know, in shared decision making, the exact numbers probably aren't that in, important because we never know the exact numbers. But the honest truth is, we're almost always safe because the patients we do share decision making right now, at least, are almost always so low risk that you know we're incredibly safe. We're talking about 0.1 or 1% uh, here. Uh, we have a huge margin of safety. And then you hit the, the most important nail on the head. What we have in emergency medicine is that ability to reassess patients. So it's probably less important than the exact numbers is just demonstrating to the patient that you care and having some kind of uh, discussion and reassessment. Yeah, I mean, one other thing I will just point out is the context matters, right? If the patient's like, I need to leave right now to go to a, you know, to go to a flight to Australia, and you know, in about four or five hours, they're going to be, you know, over the Pacific Ocean, and there's there's not going to be any availability of any treatments. Then I think, you, you know, in that situation, it'd be like, boy, we really should make sure there's not an epidural there before you go. Whereas given how well they looked, if you're like, can you hang around the emergency department five more hours? You would probably rather do that. Just that way you could quickly address it, you know, as opposed to doing the test too prematurely. Well, one of my EBM mentors, Dr. Jerome Hoffman, would often say something like, you know what low risk means, Ken? Low risk. It doesn't mean no, no risk. It's not zero, but it is low risk. And time is a great diagnostic test. And we have OBS units for, you know, getting a two-hour delta on a trope. Why not have a two-hour delta on the physical exam and revisit them and see how they're doing and then send them home? All right, number seven, this is about health inequities. It's not really a nerdy question that you can answer from your data, but I'm wondering whether offering cash incentives could result in inequities for our patients. It seems like offering a $100 incentive is more likely to be enticing to someone making minimum wage than someone with a six-figure salary. Do we want healthcare to be distributed based on something other than the benefits and harms of the intervention itself? Yeah, I, I'm glad you asked this question because I think this is something that's important to, to think about. I think I'll start off by just kind of putting putting this into a little bit of context, maybe for some of your listeners who are outside of the U.S., just that in the U.S., an uninsured patient who is going to get a head CT scan is going to receive a bill for well over $1,000. So a $100 incentive to not receive a head CT that a patient doesn't really need may not seem quite so drastic looking at it through that lens. I know that doesn't really answer your question about whether or not we're creating health inequities by offering people incentives not to receive certain medical tests, but that's just one way of thinking about it. I was going to say that it, it's a bit like maybe social justice with regards to should it be some kind of graded thing. So if you make a six-figure salary, maybe offering a greater incentive not to do the test? I don't know. It's it's just complicated once you start throwing money. I have a hard enough time, and Justin, maybe you can help me out here. But, you know, it's a challenge. I, I enjoy the challenge, but it is a challenge to do shared decision-making with patients and try to navigate the healthcare system and figure out what's best for them. And I can't imagine adding another layer, including funding and incentives and costs and things like that, it's something that I don't have to do in Canada. 
wow, it just seems to make things more complicated. The one thing that I would add is, you know, there's been some models where that this is tried. I guess I, I read an article that I thought was really interesting that in Finland, um, traffic tickets are scaled to your income, right? Because you know somebody who's wealthy, a hundred dollar traffic ticket, or I don't, I'm sure they don't use the dollar in Finland, but but you know what I mean, may not be so big a deal. So it's scaled to what is approximately a half day's wages. So you could imagine if it's some you know like wealthy um, investment banker. That could be like a million dollar ticket, basically. Whereas if it's somebody, if it's somebody who's who's a bit more impoverished, it still is going to hurt to have have a you know a twenty dollar ticket or whatever. But it's it's still there. There you can potentially get at that sort of social justice to make sure that you know the incentive or the disincentive to speeding is aligned with the punishment and not sort of canceled out by by privilege. Thank you for clarifying that because that's what I was trying to get at with the social justice side of things. So question number eight might give away a little bit about the difference between our systems, because I'm a little bit unclear whether this was just a thought experiment or are you really thinking that people should actually institute some kind of cash incentive to reduce CT use? And if you are going to institute this, where does the $100 come from? I, I imagine getting a patient out of a stretcher earlier, freeing up that stretcher might actually generate $100 in revenue for the hospital. Uh, but have you thought about the overall economics of this model? Yeah, I'll, I'll handle that. I think some of the idea from this perhaps comes from ads for auto insurance in the United States, like the safe driver discount. So you're like the judicious test user discount. And that we would presume that most people with insurance, that this would be if they if they had, you know, for me, if I go to the emergency department and don't get admitted to the hospital, I believe my insurer charges me a $200 copay for choosing to go to the emergency department. And in this sort of model, they would, you know, if I go to the emergency department and decide to trust the doctor there, who, which I would because I know them and I work with them and I, I do trust them. But if, if they would give me, you know, if they would give me $100 back out of that copay, that's helping me and that's helping the insurer and that's helping the health system, you know, potentially aligning all those goals. But I think the question is to whether this is a, a, a thought experiment to be honest, one of my close colleagues, when we were presenting the earlier version of this study, which we did when we looked at, at this as a copay model, like you know, either you get your CT costs nothing additional or you're going to get an additional $100 charge to get the CT. He saw our presentation at SAM. This is Philip Scott, a mentor of mine and someone I've worked with on other, other clinical trials and research. He's vice chair of research in our department. He's like, have, have you ever thought about doing this in terms of actually offering $100 not to get the test. So I, I think the, the lesson there is, you know, present your stuff at conferences and listen thoughtfully to what people suggest. That's really the sort of story as to why we came up with that amount. In terms of why it's 100 and not 1,000 and so forth, you know, at least on the, the payment side of the study, we ranged the cost incentives um, between 100 and 1,000 in a sort of preliminary study and found that there was actually a lot of movement right around 100. Yeah, I think we clearly need to change behavior in medicine in general. And in an area like this, where there's such a huge gap between our two countries, you need some kind of way to nudge behavior. I was fascinated by the study because I had not considered money that may come from working in Canada, where we never see money in the healthcare setting. But you know, anything that can change behavior for the better seems like a reasonable option to me. The ninth question is about health literacy. And I think you did a very good job explaining the 
risk in multiple ways, including both with numbers and images. However, there was one number that really jumped out at me. In the group that had a 0.1% benefit presented to them with a 1% harm, 50% of people still wanted the CT scan. And we had explicitly told the patient that their chance of harm was 10 times an order of magnitude more than their chance of benefit. And yet half of them still wanted a CT scan. Yeah, Ken, that number jumped out at me as well. I think that number really needs some in- some attention. So does that mean that the participants didn't understand the numbers? Because, you know, harms were 10 times the benefit, but people still wanted to be scanned. Or maybe it's just the fact that harms and benefits are qualitatively different, right? The benefit is immediate, whereas the harm is delayed, maybe by decades. Or, you know, is there something else going on? I got to turn to you, the researchers here, because that number shocked me. Yeah, I I think it's more primarily the the difference in the the risks here. I think it's primarily that we're looking at an acute medical problem versus a risk of cancer that's distributed over the patient's lifetime. Also that the patients are just in the emergency department where they're surrounded by people who are facing like acute medical problems. So they're kind of primed to expect like an acute medical problem in themselves perhaps. That could be one potential explanation. Also, a lot of patients, I think, have this like preconceived notion that high-tech testing is beneficial. So I don't know if that could have came into play as well. Yeah, and I think that's a really good response, Jessica. I would say that, yeah, some of these things probably reflect a really socked-in belief that I'm going to need a, a CT scan. And, and perhaps because of some of the terminology we used in terms of, of brain injury or serious brain injury, People were so primed to think, gosh, I don't even want to have a 1% chance of having this horrible disabling thing. I'll, I'll take a, a few, you know, sort of minor thyroid cancers. Because we really didn't say, like, this was like, you know, this was like a horrible cancer that's going to eat you from the inside. Just like, hey, it's, you're going right. to get cancer. And, and many people, you know, are, are survivors of cancer. So, so it could mm-hmm. be that cancer really isn't as, as scary as, as horrible brain injury. And that, that also is another thing when you do these sorts of studies, you, you do see interesting things like that. But I do think that's a really insightful observation that you know people who by all rights should not want these tests will um, still get them. I will say that in that previous study that we did using um, an online polling platform that was put on by, by Amazon, once we turned the cost up, you know, if you charge people $1,000, they became very unlikely to get the test. And it turned way down if there was that risk-benefit discordance. But the knobs went further in both directions in that paper. Arjun Mecca, M-E-K-A, was the first author on. Well, if you listen to the SGEM, you'll know that my favorite number is five. And because we had two authors on, I doubled that number to 10. And we've only had nine questions. So here's the 10th question. Anything else you want us to know about? Yeah, I think I will cover that. So one thing that I've done with this, and you can see this in here, is that we've, we've posted all our methods and data online as an appendix, and we have the data in the University of Michigan data repository. It's all, all clean data, so it's not linked directly to participants. But I think that it's important. You have to get your sort of methodology and, and data analysis to a, a good spot to sort of air it out out there so other people can pull down your data set and see if they they get at the same thing. 
but I think absolutely, I would like to see you know replication of this. If this is the next interesting question, you know maybe you know think about that percentage of annual income type question, or put the rebate in there with the additional copay. But I, I do think it would be interesting to see if you know this was replicated in other settings, other countries, perhaps with lower baseline rates of advanced imaging, whether we would see. I'm sure we would see differences. You know, it'd be interesting that it would be just be interesting to see how this would turn out in in Canada or in other countries in the developing world that have perhaps um, even less access to CT. Well, thanks for answering our ten nerdy questions. We're going to comment now on the author's conclusions and compare them to our conclusions. So yeah, we agree with the author's conclusions as it applies to this patient population but we're not so sure about the external validity to other healthcare systems. It certainly is interesting and warrants further exploration in other populations. All right, Justin, give us the SGEM bottom line. So the potential risk, the potential benefit, and of course, money can influence people's behavior in making healthcare decisions. And can you resolve the case you presented? Yes, you explained to the patient that he is very low risk for a serious head injury based on the Canadian CT head rule. After discussing the risks of CT and the negligible chance of a benefit, the patient and his dad are happy to observe his symptoms and only get a CT scan if it gets worse. And how do you think we can take this paper and clinically apply it? Well, I don't think I'm going to be offering my patients financial incentives as part of medical decision-making anytime soon. However, I use shared decision-making every single shift. For this patient, you know, a patient that passes the Canadian CT head rule, I actually wouldn't perform shared decision-making because I think the decision is actually clear. A CT scan isn't needed. But if the choice is unclear, then I perform shared decision-making, presenting the risks and benefits as best I can in multiple formats, just like the authors did here. So what are you going to say at the patient's bedside to the patient, and in this case, to his dad? So in a scenario where shared decision-making was warranted, I might say something like, I'm not sure if you need a CT scan at this point. You know, I think the chance that we're missing an important injury is 1% or about 1 in 100. A CT scan would catch that injury, but it exposes you to some radiation, so your risk might be 0.1% or 1 in 1,000. Another option would just be to stay in the emergency department for a couple hours so I can keep an eye on you and perform repeat brain testing. And then we can just get the CT scan if you're not getting any better. On the other hand, if you want to fly to Michigan, you might be able to find somebody who's willing to pay you $100 not to get scanned. <laughs> oh, that was, that was well played, Justin, well played. And, and I would recommend um, <laughs> flying to Windsor and driving through the tunnel because it's much easier than going yeah. through the pre-clearance at YYZ. There was no Keener contest winner last week. The question was, in 1949, Sir Robert R. McIntosh first used a device called the gum elastic bougie as a tracheal inducer. We wanted to know what the device was originally designed for and its proper name. Well, the answer is, the gum elastic bougie was a urinary catheter that was originally used for dilation of urethral strictures. The device we call the bougie today is correctly named the Eschman Tracheal Tube Inducer. Justin, what's the question this week? In what year was the first brain CT performed on a patient? Well, if you know the answer to this week's Keener Contest question, 
then send an email to thesgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. And now it's your turn, S-Gemmers. You know this. This was a hot-off-the-press episode. Do you have questions about this episode? Wonder whether you could start an incentive program in your own hospital? You know, tweet your comments using the hashtag SGEMHOP. If you have any questions, leave them for Dr. Moyer and his team on the SGEM blog, because as you know, the best social media feedback will get published in AEM. And Jessica, will you be available to answer any questions on the blog and on Twitter? Of course. Oh, should we be sending Snapchats or uh, Instagram? Yeah, I'm not so much up on all that stuff. I'm kind of old-fashioned, but I can do the Twitter stuff. So you can do Twitter and Facebook, like old-fashioned, like, you know, Justin and I? Old-fashioned, yeah. (laughs) I think we need to wrap this up, Justin, before I start feeling really old. All right, don't forget, those who subscribe to AEM can head over to the homepage and get CME credits for this podcast, and we'll put the process in the blog. Thanks, Justin, for coming on. And next time, I think we'll be able to coordinate schedules because we'll be in the same country and in the same time zone. Yeah, I'm excited to get home, Ken. It's always a pleasure to spend an afternoon of nerdy conversation with you. And Will, Jessica, thank you so much for joining us and answering our nerdy questions. It is such a pleasure to be able to learn directly from the researchers behind the articles that we spend all of our time reading. Yeah, no, thank you for thinking to uh, include us. And it was really our pleasure. Hey, Jessica, you know what? I'm going to be in Michigan in January giving grand rounds and doing a live recording of the SGM. Perhaps you could stop by and see how the magic is made in real time. Oh, definitely. Sounds fun. All right. Well, until then, can you read the SGM tagline, Jessica? Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time. Oh.